Well, we can set the context for our passage today in this way. Um, we, we are constantly navigating a world full of choices. It wasn't that long ago at our house that we had the uh, almost catastrophic need to buy a new dishwasher. Uh, if you've ever had that need with a number of young children in the home, it, it becomes quite, a, quite an important um, quite an important need to address, and, and when we had that need arise, I just happened to look, look on Amazon, because after all, you can get everything on Amazon, and I came to find out there were over 100, I think there were like 120 different dishwashers I could choose from to get delivered to our house. Uh, we didn't actually end up getting something from Amazon, but it was just amazing the number of choices there that are present. We're very used to having a whole lot of choices, and, and there are choices that we make regarding things much more significant than dishwashers, though depending on the day, maybe not that much more. They can be important. Uh, but I was recently reading something from, from a Pew Research study that was published a few years ago, and the, and the research question was asking Americans an open-ended question about what gives their life meaning. So it wasn't a question with a list of options, it was just an open-ended question, what, what gives your life meaning? And, and in the end, there were, there were a, many different answers given to this meaning of life question, which is really something, if you think about it, here we are, we share a common humanity, uh, but the question is posed, what gives your life meaning? And, and, the, and the responses were manifold, everything from, uh, from exercise and fitness to spirituality to family life to money or hobbies or, or more education, the list was just huge. And it struck me as so interesting that even with something as deeply human and central to who we are as people, uh, like what makes our life meaningful, even in something like that, choices seem to abound. There's all kinds of different options that can be pursued, which is an interesting thing to think about as we come to the study of the Bible, because ultimately when we come to the study of Scripture, the Scriptures are constantly presenting us with a question but it's a question that isn't open-ended, and it's a question that doesn't have an, an Amazon search list number of answers to it. Uh, in a world full of choices, the Bible comes to us with a question that really just leaves us with two choices. And the question is, where will we, where, where will we be placing our trust? In whom or in what will you be trusting? And, and the Scriptures leave us with two options for our answers. Either I will be trusting in the Lord, or I will be trusting in an alternative. The whole Bible gives us this one big question, where will you be placing your trust? And there are only two options for, for an answer. I will be trusting in the Lord God, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, or I will be trusting in something else, which of course is a very broad category, but something else is a significant category. I'm either trusting in the Lord, or I'm trusting in an alternative to the Lord, whether that's my status or money or whatever it might be, that perfect relationship, many number of things. But from Genesis to Revelation, this is the question the Bible sets before us. Where will we be placing our hope? And as we've been studying 1 Samuel, uh, this choice that the Bible sets before us on, on the whole, it comes uh, before us in a kind of particular and unique uh, expression as we've studied the book of 1 Samuel together. Because we've seen how Israel is in the, has been in the process of making a choice. Israel has said that they want a king of their own choosing. They're, they're acting, as we have learned studying this book, they're acting in an idolatrous way toward the Lord. They're saying, instead of trusting in the Lord, we would like to have a king like the nations around us have. That's what we would like to put our trust in. We need somebody who's going to deliver us from our enemies, and we want to look like the world around us. We want to be placing our trust in this king rather than in the Lord. And, and Israel gets that king, and his name is Saul. And even Saul's name indicates this choosing tension uh, Saul's name in Hebrew is Shaul, which is the Hebrew word for demand or, or strongly ask. 
So Saul is the king of the people's demanding. That's who Saul is. And, and in so doing, as the people demand this king, we have seen how they're rejecting, trusting in the Lord. And as the narrative goes on, we continue to see that the king of the people's choice is in this, is in this continual posture of declining. Uh, Saul fails Israel time and time again. He persists in his rebellion against God's word. Uh, but the Lord who is gracious and blesses his people out of his love for them and not according to what their sins deserve, uh, the Lord provides another king. And this isn't a king of the people's choosing, but this is a king, we remember, this is a king after God's own heart. This is the king of God's choosing. So, so this next king, as the Lord reveals through the prophet Samuel, this next king is going to be different. It won't be a king of the people's demanding. It will be a king whose heart is oriented toward trusting in and obeying the Lord. And we know this is King David. And, and we also know, as we've studied this book and worked out uh, how, to, how to interpret Scripture in a proper way, that ultimately King David's life proves to be a shadow pointing forward to the climactic king of God's choosing, namely Jesus Christ. And so as we're looking at this, we're constantly seeing a contrast in 1 Samuel between the king of the people's demanding and the king of God's own appointment, the king of God's choosing. And we're being called time and time again to put our trust, to orient ourselves in a way that places faith in God's design rather than in our, our mere uh, desires and our own, our own choices. And so as we come to this final chapter of 1 Samuel, what the narrator is, is setting before us ultimately here goes back to this choices theme that has been set before us as we've studied through the book. Ultimately, we're driven back to consider our own two choices. Will, will we place our trust in God's King, or will we place our trust in alternatives, in, in things or people or institutions of our own choosing that we think might bring the life and relief that we need, but ultimately prove uh, to fail us? So which will we choose? And to help us make that decision in a way that leads toward life, we actually have chapter 31, this final chapter, set up in a way that contrasts. Uh, no doubt there's, there's a main and clear account in this final chapter of Saul's defeat and death and then the sorrowful ramifications that follow after all of that. But, but as we read this chapter closely, especially in connection to what we've been told about David in the last chapter we studied, which is the week before Easter when we studied chapter 30, uh, really what we discover is that we have this big compare and contrast picture given to us asking us this, this central question, who are we going to be trusting in? and working things out in such a way that we're ultimately driven to trust in the king of God's choosing, where, where life is to be found. And, and again, this truth, it's a repetitive truth in 1 Samuel that we come to again and again. It constantly replays in a sense, but that is because it's a truth that we need to refresh ourselves in with regularity. For the simple fact that alternatives do abound for us. Well, we're ultimately choosing between just two realities, either trusting in the Lord or trusting in things that are not the Lord. That's a very big category, the things that are not the Lord category. There are all kinds of options for us out there as we go into the world around us that offer hope, that offer peace, that offer promises of rest, all of those kinds of things. Alternatives to hoping in the living God can creep in in so many ways. It may even creep in politically like with Israel. We certainly saw that in the last political season we endured. You know, if we just have this political person in office, then our hopes are going to be realized. That's very much a, a human draw that we, that we feel. We know the kind of tension uh, that that can create. Uh, but there are all kinds of other alternatives as well. It might just be something like if I just had that relationship, well, then I would be whole. 
Or if I just had that amount of money, uh, th- then I would be able to have, have the quietness of heart that I've been longing for. Or, or if I just had that professional position or that one change in life circumstances. Or maybe if that health concern was finally removed and I had the physical relief that I've wanted for so long, then I would be a whole person and then I'd be at peace. So these kinds of thoughts can, can enter our hearts with regularity and Scripture comes and calls us back. The Word of God calls us back by showing us both the reality of what alternatives ultimately get us, and in contrast, the Scriptures also show us the true hope that trusting in the Lord will surely bring to us. And so, and so we're, we're thinking about those contrasting choices here. Um, and, as, and as we work through these 13 verses, we'll see how this plays out. Now, uh, by way of an outline for these, for these verses... Um, we're, we're going to go with one that, uh, on the one hand, reflects the gloom of the passage. But again, we're not left with the gloom that's here. But, but if we're just going to outline this passage with the gloom that is, that is reflected here on Saul's final day, we can work through the chapter under three main words. The, the first word is death. The second word is desecration. And the last word is failure. Um, so how's that for, for rainbows and daisies on this Sunday morning? Right? It's gloomy enough outside. We have to talk about death, desecration, and failure. Welcome to church. Right? But actually what we see as we do this is there is this, this counterpoint offered. There is this contrast offered. That while with Saul there's this death, desecration, and failure, what we actually see taking place is this call to trust in the one who doesn't bring death but brings victory, who doesn't bring uh, this kind of desecration but instead brings renewal, and who doesn't ultimately fail us, but who ultimately achieves life for us. So there's this glorious hope that's, that's, that's brought to us as we're thinking through these things. So it sounds bad, but the badness isn't the final word, all right? On a dreary day like this, you know, we've got to say something like that, because we just got teased with sunshine. Now the sunshine's gone, that's, that's bad enough. Um, so let, let's, let's look through this. First of all, we'll have verses 1 to 6. Um, and again, we'll start there with death, though, though with victory. There's a a sunny side to this. Um, But but there's no doubt, if you just look at verses 1 to 6, there's no doubt that in these verses, death is the immediate focus. Again, just because the word itself appears three times in the span of these verses. Um, So so here we have the account of this battle, really, that we've been gearing up for for quite some time now. The, The Philistines, we know they've set up for war against Israel. Saul's been very concerned about that. It's because of that that he'd gone to that uh, to that necromancer, you remember, that spiritist, and, and called up Samuel from the dead, that whole situation. This, this battle's been brewing, and now the fight's begun, and actually, by, by the time we drop into the narrative here, the fight is just about over. The things barely seem to have started, and then they're finishing, and things go just as the prophet Samuel had said they would go. So this battle is on, and in verse 1, Israel's men flee and are killed by the Philistines. In verse 2, it gets even worse, and that the Philistines uh, get a line on Saul and his sons, and they pursue them. And there we read that Saul's sons, including Jonathan, so, so the, the, the man of faith and the friend of David and the fighter for Israel, Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, along with Saul and two of his other sons, they're killed. Or at least not, not Saul yet. We get Saul in verse 3. Saul in verse 3, we read that the battle intensified against Saul. So his sons are killed. Battle is intensified against him. And it's actually just interesting to note there that that word for intensified, at least in the CSB translation that we're reading from here, it's actually the Hebrew word kavod, which if you remember is the word for glory. 
and, and glory has been a repeating theme all through the book of Samuel. So it's just interesting here that the word is used again. We remember how we've talked about how the word glory is really the word for, for weighty in its basic form. It means that something is heavy and the narrator's playing on that here and that the battle grew more weighty against Saul, but it's kind of this anti-glory that's present in Saul's life here as things are coming to an end. Because ultimately we read that the Philistine archers find Saul. It's actually a way of speaking there about their arrows finding Saul, like finding a target, right? And, and, and so as a result, we read how he's severely wounded. In verse 3, actually that, that language there speaks of Saul writhing and trembling as the archers find their mark. So he's not, he's not dead yet, but he's wounded and, he's, and he's, he's, he's writhing and trembling. It's a very disconcerting uh, kind of language that's used there. Saul, Saul is in a bad way. And so in verse 4, Saul wants to avoid uh, the prospect of torture if he's captured alive, obviously. So he asked his armor bearer to run him through. He has to be killed. Again, we do see this expression of, of faithless Saul in this sense. We, we see him now has progressed so far from trusting in the Lord that he's not even going to give lip service to God in this, certainly the, the darkest moment of his life to date. He's about to die, but there's no expression of faith whatsoever. You know, we have David in the Psalms saying things like, how many are my foes, so many are, are gathered against me, or, or rise up and defend me, O God of my salvation. That's David's posture when he's pressed down in unique ways. With Saul, there's not one single expression of faith, uh, but instead uh, he just wants his armor bearer to kill him. The armor bearer, we're told, won't do it because he feared. He feared. It's a reverential kind of fear. No doubt the armor bearer was with Saul when there was that big interaction with David a few chapters ago in chapter 26 where David speaks about not laying a hand on the Lord's anointed. You remember that? Probably the armor bearer took that to heart. Oftentimes we find Saul's servants not doing what he says when he asks them to do unrighteous things. And here the armor bearer won't do it. He's not going to lay a hand on Saul. Um, and so Saul falls on his own sword in verse 4. Um, his armor bearer sees this and falls on his sword as well. And in verse 6, that gives us the, the final grim assessment telling us that on that day Saul died together with three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men. So death. Uh, for those of you who may want to venture into Second Samuel and, and read ahead uh, for, for a future time of study, um, you'll, you'll run into the fact that uh, an Amalekite comes to David later on and says that he's the one who killed Saul, that he that he, he took Saul out. Um, but we don't have to actually think that's the case. He comes bringing some paraphernalia from Saul, but probably he's just looking for honor from David. It appears that he died here. The, the Amalekite will get the opposite of honor from David. He, he's looking for a boost in his own situation now, thinking David will be glad. He's not glad it all goes badly. But we can be sure, uh, just based on the text, that Saul Saul dies on this day. And, and, uh, and then as we think about this death kind of consuming us here, this is where things get a little bit interesting in terms of how the narrator is setting up our focus. So we have to think textually about this here for a moment. Um, you've probably seen the shows, or maybe it's in a movie where, where there's the scene in, in, the, in the show where the screen is split for us as viewers. Have you, have you watched episodes like that? So while something is happening with one character over here, we're also showing that something else is happening simultaneously for another character over here. And, and it's set up that way in that show to help us have a sense of the story and, and that as the viewers we need to know that there are two things happening simultaneously for the rest of the story to make sense. So, and so, so the screen gets split to help us see that. Um, and, and, and really, as far as he's able, that's basically what the author of this chapter is doing for us here between chapter 30 and chapter 31 is he's giving us split screens 
So, so while Saul dies here, the writer wants us to see that this battle where Saul dies is happening at the exact same time as the battle that David is fighting back in chapter 30. Um, remember the scene back in chapter 30, Ziklag, David's city has been looted and burned by the Amalekites. The families of David and his men have been carried off. So, so David's gone after the Amalekites. He attacks them. That's, that's what chapter 30 was all about. If you remember that, if you were here for that. Uh, but here, chapter 31 opens by indicating that we have a parallel event going on in time. Now, the author provides this narrative equivalent of a split screen. And we get this if we have a little bit more of a little, literal reading of the, of the Hebrew verb form used at the beginning of chapter 31. When we read this just in our English Bible, it sounds almost past tense. The Philistines fought against Israel. Uh, but, but with the verb form that's there, we could read this more literally and, and, and say, during this time the Philistines were fighting against Israel. That's, that's the, the sense of the language there. So, so during this time, uh, we, we just were reading about in the last chapter where David is fighting the Amalekites. During that time, the narrator is saying to us, in effect, there's this parallel battle taking place at the same point in time. That, that's set up for us. And then just to punctuate the connection we have, uh, there, there's parallel language that's actually used all throughout here. But it, just in this first section, uh, we have parallel language, but with a very different outcome. So back in chapter 30, parallel battle happening. Uh, and again, we use little more, a little bit more literal wording to catch this. But back in chapter 30, verse 17, we're told that David slays the Amalekites and they flee. That's what's going on right now for David. Split the screen. In our chapter, we're told that the Philistines slay Saul and his sons and the Israelites flee. So, so you see the split screen that's set up. Two battles are happening at the same time. Watch David on this side of the screen. What's happening? Well, David's slaying the enemies of God's people and the enemies are fleeing. Okay, now the other side of the screen. Watch the Saul side and what's happening. Well, Saul and his sons and his soldiers are the ones who have been slain. And the enemy isn't fleeing, but instead Israel's own fighters are fleeing. So two totally opposite outcomes here. David versus Saul. But again, we see what this is driving at in terms of the central concern of 1 Samuel. With the king of the peoples demanding, choosing, they're slain and they flee. With the king of God's choosing, the enemies are the ones who are slain and who flee. So, so we see the point that's this being made. With, with, with the alternative to trusting in God is defeat. But in trusting in the king of God's choosing, there's victory. It's plain as can be. In fact, in fact, it goes even further than that if we work comparisons out. And we could spend a lot of time comparing this, even comparing it with David's victory with Goliath. There's a lot of parallels here. But, but, but if we uh, think back in time, you remember how the weakest of David's men whom he left at the stream of Besor to rest, you remember that? Even the weakest men with David received reward after the battle. But with Saul, even his own sons, the royal ones, what do they get? They get death. So, so this contrast is set, a huge contrast is set, and the question is put before us, where is our trust going to be placed? And, and, and we hear this, this final verse of Saul's life that the narrator is, is saying to us, just think it all out in this way. Will we be trusting in what we want and what we might shaul and, and what we might demand uh, in order to bring us hope and life and all of these things? Or will we be trusting in God's choice king, ultimately leading us to the question about Christ? Will I be yielding to Jesus? Now, that's a broad question, 
And it will become more refined here as the text goes on. But we can just sit with that question and its bigness and implications and even, even the simplicity of that question for a moment. When it comes right down to it, what am I really hoping in? If, if, we, if we just take that question, what am I really hoping in? Not just religious lip service kind of hoping, but what am I really hoping in? Where am I placing my trust? Am I placing my trust in the things that the world outside of me or the feelings inside of me say will bring happiness? Am I placing my trust in the good things I've done because they align with God's program and so I think because of the merits I've worked up, that's going to get me the favor that I need before God? Or are we trusting in who God's King is and what He's done on my There is not a bigger or a more... Am I trusting in alternatives or am I trusting in Jesus? There is, there is not a bigger or a more important question that we could ever ask of our own hearts. One choice brings death, even for the most royally connected, and one choice brings life, even for the weariest among us. Where am I placing my trust? Where are you placing your trust? And we feel our weakness in this, but we want to pray and ask God for the grace to have our whole heart turned toward. And we want to pray and ask Him for things like, would you make the hymn writer's words my words, where he says, take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are but a name, but His love abides forever through eternal years the same. So take the world, but give me Jesus. Lord, give me the grace we need to be praying. Give me the grace to make that longing true in my heart. I trust the King of your choosing. Even in my weakness when I express the, 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 the reality that I don't all the time, I still want to trust in the King of your choosing. The desire of my heart is to be oriented toward Christ. And so Saul's example there, the situation that drives us to that kind of big consideration, where, where, which, which, uh, which direction are we turning? So we have that, first of all, in 1 to 6. We have death, the alternative, of course, to death being victory with God's king, life even for the most weary. Um, So with that, then let's move on to verses 7 to 10, where we have desecration, desecration, with the alternative being renewal. Desecration and renewal is worked out here. Um, So if you look at verse 7, things are obviously in a dismal state. Uh, First of all, we read that when the rest of Israel hears about Saul and his sons dying, uh, we read that a number of Israelite cities are abandoned. So, so the people are fleeing. There's more fleeing going on. And then so the Philistines come in and they settle in those cities, we're told. Which is a really big deal because if we put this in the broader picture of God's redemptive work and the grace that He's given to His people, we, we remember what God had promised to Israel on the other side of their exodus from Egypt. God, God had promised them this land that they were going to inhabit, this land that they were going to dwell in. And he'd spoken to them about this promise. And now Israel is fleeing the cities given by God and foreigners are reoccupying those cities again. So, so even in this immediate event, we have a kind of deconquest of the land going on, a kind of separation from the blessing of God going on. What Israel was given, now Israel has lost. And not just that, but the day after the battle, we're told that the Philistines are out looting the slain Israelites and they find Saul and his sons dead on the mountain. In verse 8. And you can read the details there, but ultimately Saul and his sons, they're, they're defiled. Saul is beheaded, and the corpses of Saul and his sons are hung, hung, hung publicly, um, which in the ancient Near East was, was to expose them not only to, to post-mortem humiliation, but they're also eaten by wildlife 
which in the ancient Near East, including even in, in, in Israel's view, Deuteronomy 28, 26 speaks about this, to be eaten in that way, to be tormented by wildlife after death is to be cursed, to be counted as cursed. So it's a way of post-mortem cursing of, of God's king and his sons there. That's what's going on. Um, so so it's, just, it's just all profane. It's all, it's all getting worse. Israelite cities are abandoned. The king and his sons are profaned. Saul's armor is even taken to the temple of the pagan gods as a symbol of the Philistine victory. And, and then with all of that, there's this proclamation that goes out from the Philistines in verse 9. In verse 9. In fact, let me just read verse 9 to you. It says, They cut off Saul's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to spread the good news in the temple of their idols and among the people. So cities lost, king profaned, and, and the quote-unquote good news message is proclaimed uh, as, as, as one of ruin for Israel in verse 9. That's, that's what's going on here. Now, split the screen again. And, and what's going on at the exact same time with David? Remember, simultaneous battles. Well, we see that David is actually winning a... He went after the Amalekites this time. Remember, we talked about this at length. How, how, how uh, he, he went after the Amalekites, and everything that the Amalekites took in the raid was, was actually restored by David. He went and he got it all back, and he passed it back out to the men. They had their families restored to them. The text makes a very significant point in that not one thing that was taken, not one person who was kidnapped was lost with David. So David restores all of these things to, to his people. Possessions and people are not lost, they're restored. And David isn't profaned, but he's actually praised by the people in that chapter. You remember that where they say, the plunder is David's. Like David did all of this. David actually has to go back and say, wait, we need to remember that this victory is from the Lord. He's got to calm him down a bit. But they're saying this is David's plunder. They're praising David for what he's done. And then we also have a connection with this proclamation back in chapter 30. But we're here in 31. The good news after Saul's defeat is a message that goes out of ruin for Israel. That's the good news for the Philistines. Israel's ruined. Back in chapter 30, we had the same word. We had the good news word there too, you remember, where David left his men who were weary to rest at the stream of Besor, which is the same Hebrew word. It means good news. Good news. So, so uh, David left his men to rest at the good news stream, while the good news in Saul's context is that Israel has been totally ruined. Again, an enormous contrast. So we've got this split screen to think about. With Saul, all possessions lost, King defiled, the good news message is one of ruin for Israel. At the same time, what's happening with God's choice king? Well, you have possessions restored, the king is praised, and the good news message is rest for the weary, reward even for the weary. Right? And so we think about this because, because the contrast helps us to focus more, more clearly on what's really being presented to us in terms of trusting in God's king, ultimately that king being Jesus. The, the contrast is there between trusting in God's king Jesus or trusting in alternatives. And, and so on the one hand, we, we have to see what alternatives produce. That's the purpose of this narrative, to show us what alternatives to God's king, alternatives like Saul, what do they produce? And what we see is they don't just produce a neutral kind of condition, but they produce this kind of disintegration, a kind of decreation, if you like. The, the cities that were once lived in are lost. There's a, there's a diminishment of the promised land. The, the leader who was once elevated is profaned, and the message isn't one of hope, but instead the good news is good news only for the people's enemies. It's this alternative outcome that is di disintegrating 
uh, in terms of in terms of alternatives offered with without God's king. But of course, with God's king, everything is opposite. What's lost is regained. Is regained. The leader proves to be to to be strong. The message is one of rest. The, these two things are just set up, and and so we need to always hold out this truth with a kind of central significance. Because what we need to see, and from this narrative we get this, we as humanity never remain in a neutral position. And, and, and we've said this many times throughout our studies in Samuel. But we are either going in a decreation direction toward death, you know, more sorrow, more confusion, more heartache, more hopelessness, desecration, decreation. Or we are with God's King and we are going the way of, of ultimately recreation, of renewal. This is what God's King works in us. So by the grace of Christ, life is being restored to us. By the grace of Christ, hope is renewed in us. By the grace of Christ, the things that would otherwise be the end of us are not a picture of defeat, but instead we're sustained. And the good news message is one of hope and rest and peace. It doesn't mean that there are never hard days with God's King. There are plenty of hard days with David out in the wilderness. But it's a matter of trajectory. With God's King, there's a trend towards life. With alternatives to God's king, there's a very clear trend towards death, destruction, desecration. What is sacred is profaned. And don't we see that all around us? Culture, culture proves to be an apologetic for this kind of thing. When left to our own choices, how have we done? Are, are we surrounded with renewal and joy? Are we surrounded with happy children and flourishing people populating our streets, thriving with purpose, free from discouragement, free from depression, but instead just joy everywhere? Is that what's going on with the alternatives that we've pursued as a world? That's not what's going on, is it? No, we're, we're surrounded by depths of despair. We're surrounded by greater displays of confusion. We're, dis, we're surrounded by all kinds of atrocities, physical bodies being destroyed in the name of independence, all kinds of, of horrible things, streets with people literally slumping over and dying in front of the grocery store. We have not done well going after our own devices. We are not finding life. We're finding death out there. You see it when you drive down the street. Alternatives to Christ do not bring life. And so the question becomes for us, are we going to choose this, the, 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 the king of our own demanding, these resources of our own demanding, or are we going to go with God's king who brings life? Which direction am I going? Which direction are you going? Am I placing the hope, my hope in the things of my own choosing? Those things that might make me feel well even for a moment. They seem like they're going to be so hopeful, but ultimately they go contrary to God's way of life. Am I placing my hope in those things? Or am I centering my hope on the fact that with God's king there is life, even on days I don't entirely understand how it will go? Isn't that what we see with David so often in the Psalms? David is very honest about what it looks like to follow God faithfully. Some days are hard. Some days for David are full of depression. Some days are full of discouragement. But the end for David is not to ask his armor bearer to pierce him through. The end for David is to say, O Lord, my rock, I trust in you. O Lord, my rock, you're the one who's going to bring me through. You're the one who brings me out of the pit of despair and sets my feet upon the rock. You're the one who preserves me and provides for me, and I will trust in you. And what do we see in David's life? Well, we see this trajectory of hope. We see David rising as Saul is declining. And so we, we we're brought to just consider the fact that this person of God's choosing, the king of God's choosing, ultimately the Lord Jesus, he does not come and bring us a kind of decreation, but he comes and he brings us recreation. He, he purchases the glorious truth on the cross and in his resurrection, which, we, which we've just been celebrating, that death is not the final word for us, but instead he's making all things new. He's right now making us new. He's making you new right now. 
The reality of the resurrected you is being applied by the risen Christ right now to you as He's transforming you from one degree of glory to another. He's bringing you through to newness. That's what we get with God's King. Restoration. So, so we have got this, this, this death, this desecration, this decreation with Saul, but it's balanced out by this renewal with God's King. And then just one more thing, and we'll make this last one quick. Verses 11 to 13 uh, we, have, we have failure contrasted with achievement. Failure contrasted with achievement. So in those last verses, um, it's actually kind of a strange account of this uh, Jabesh-Gilead group. Just to read it, it kind of comes out of the blue. They hear about how, how the Philistines have treated the bodies of Saul and his sons. Uh, so some brave men set out to retrieve the bodies. Would have been a, a dangerous mission. They have to go at night. That shows that it's dangerous. It was about a 13-mile trip. Uh, deep into newly acquired, uh, or through newly acquired Philistine territory. Uh, but they retrieve the bodies, uh, they prepare the bodies, and they bury them. Uh, the bones are buried under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh, which we won't spend time on that, but there's irony there. We remember how much Saul liked sitting under the tree, the tamarisk tree, when he was supposed to be doing his job. He said he just sat there holding his spear, yelling at people. Right? Now he's buried under the tree. The people fasted for seven days. Um, and actually, in this, there, there's, actually, there's a great deal of reverence reflected here. In fact, later, in 2 Samuel, David is going to commend these men for their brave act in honoring Saul in this way. They treat the bodies with respect. They should have done that. This was a good thing to do. But, but in that, there's a sadness in this otherwise heroic scene. And that's because Jabesh, they were actually the first town to be delivered after Saul was king. So if you remember back to 1 Samuel 11, which was apparently a long time ago that we studied that, but 1 Samuel 11 was that situation where Saul uh, delivered Jabesh-Gilead from Nahash the Ammonite, if you remember that. So, so this town would have been especially thankful to Saul for that help. And back at that time, there was so much hope for Saul. And in, fa in fact, this kind of deliverance marked out a main purpose. Saul was to serve as king. In retrospect, it's eerie to read, but in chapter 9, Saul's commission as the king over Israel was to save the people from the Philistines. That was his big commission. Now here's Saul, not saving the people from the Philistines, but he's the one whose own corpse has to be rescued from the Philistines. Like it doesn't get any further down than that. It's a dark irony that's here. Saul was supposed to save, but he failed. He didn't defeat the Philistines. Even his dead body needs saving from the Philistines. So total failure is represented here on the part of Saul. And, and this points us to, to a central truth about those things that are alternatives to trusting in God's king in that they don't do what we hope they'll do. And we've talked about this, but, but those things, those people, those ambitions, those potential relationships, uh, those financial dreams, those career aspirations, those family plans, all of those things as good and wonderful and godly as they can all be, they don't ultimately offer what we ultimately need. None of them do. In fact, so often the opposite takes place quite dramatically in that they let us down. The things, the people who may have promised rest and peace for us, they fail. I don't want to ask you to really do this, but, but probably every one of us could put up a hand if I asked the question, has somebody who should have supported you and kept you in their care failed you? Yes. Yes. Okay, how about, uh, have, have you failed somebody you've been called to support and maintain and extend care and love for? But, but you see, that's why we don't ultimately trust in alternatives to God's king. Because people and entities are plans, they're fragile, we're failing. But God's king never fails. 
He's the one who continually exercises care for us in a perfect way. That's what the Lord Jesus does. No one can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus will say to us when we get into studying the, the book of John. Right? He keeps us perfectly. And we note that after Saul's battle here, even his corpse has to be rescued. But again, we split the screen. And after David's battle in chapter 30, remember what all the people are shouting. This is David's plunder. God's king wins. He doesn't fail us, but he achieves restoration and wholeness and victory for us. And not just that, but he maintains our place of safety. Right? With Saul, the Philistines have literally moved into the Israelite towns. In contrast, this is something very interesting to note. Uh, in contrast, after David's defeat of the Amalekites in chapter 30, who are a historic problem for Israel, after David's defeat in the last chapter, the Amalekites won't bother Israel for 300 years. David achieves victory and rest for God's people, God's king. Nothing else, no one else is worthy of our ultimate trust in the king of God's choosing, ultimately the king, the Lord Jesus. All other things, all other people will prove not to be potent enough to bring us ultimate relief, but God's king is, Jesus is. He's the one who wins our victory in the most ultimate sense. He wins that victory at the cross, paying for our sin, dying, rising again to new life, vindicated in his work, knowing that we too will one day rise because of the freedom that he's won for us from sin's bondage and sin's death. His achievement is lasting. It's not temporary. It's not frail. And he never leaves us. He's not the one who makes promises and fails to achieve them. Jesus is the one who makes promises and proves his power again and again and again to keep them. So we have the question where we say, can you think of a time when somebody failed you? Can you think of a time when, somebody, when you failed somebody? Now think of your darkest hour as you sit here today and think back on the fact that you're here by the Lord's grace and what he's brought you to. And can we all raise our hands if we say, think about the time Jesus sustained me when nothing else would. Think about the time when things were so dark, so low, so defeated seeming, and Jesus actually brought me to a place of life in the midst of those things. That's what he does for us. And so, so this choice is set before us. So do, do, we, do we demand our own entities or things, those things of our choosing that, that we want to be in charge, that we want to be ultimate in our life, or do we turn our attention and our allegiance to the king of God's choosing? And in the final word of 1 Samuel, the final chapter, really, as these two are looked at together, these two chapters, really the final chapter is just calling us to sing, all to Jesus I surrender. Right? Who is my king, really? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Have you said that recently, just devotionally in your own life? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. Well, most of the things to him I freely give, but actually I'm keeping this over here just as a little a modicum of support for my own ideas and my own endeavors. No, all to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him and in his presence daily live. We yield to the king of God's choosing and in him we find rest at the good news stream. And that's the glory of the gospel. Christ is the one for us. And Samuel drives us in that direction. Uh, which we find as we even consider a chapter on darkness. We're driven to the life that's found in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> so, Father, we ask that you'd renew our hearts with your truth, turn our attention toward the sufficiency, the supremacy, the perfection, the constant care and abiding love that's found in the Lord Jesus. Uh, may we not look for that anywhere else. May we find it fully in Christ. May we rest in Him no matter what may come, knowing that the trajectory of our life, because we have Him, is life, and nothing can interrupt that. 
Nothing can disturb that. Nothing can stop life coming for us because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. We praise you for that truth. Renew us in it today. Encourage our hearts. We ask this in his name. Amen.